1868, Japan opened its doors to the world after being isolated for nearly three centuries. The last ruling member of the Tokugawa shogunate, which had ruled the country during that time, restored full power to the emperor, and the nation's ports welcomed foreign guests, dignitaries, and visitors. At this time, Japan exposed herself to Western ideals, and in turn, Japanese goods were exported to the West, where they were, more often than not, afforded by the rich, who paraded themselves through the streets of European and American cities to show off their status through these exotic luxuries. It was an exciting time for people on both sides of the east-west axis, but not everyone welcomed it. Naturally, with such a great leap forward as this, several changes were made to Japan's government, and many age-old traditions faced the threat of being neglected for good. The end of the shogunate, for instance, meant the end of the samurai, the elite military force equivalent to the knights of medieval Europe, who had served the various feuding lords throughout the period of isolation and even before. What would become of them? Would the Japanese government simply turn their backs on them after generations of loyalty? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at the man who challenged the Japanese government in that country's most exciting time, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. From the European perspective, Japan had for centuries been seen as a distant, exotic, almost mythic land at the edge of the known world. The first reports of an island country off the eastern coast of China reached European shores from none other than Marco Polo himself, who'd heard tales from the Mongol emperor Kublai Khan of an island rich in gold and whose palaces were encrusted with pearls and other such precious gems. The name the emperor gave of this country was Shipangu, and over the ensuing three or four centuries, this is how it would appear on European maps, as an amorphous bean-shaped mass of land in the terra incognita of the Far East. When Polo asked if it was possible to visit it for himself, the great Khan shook his head remorsefully. According to the Mongol emperor, it was protected by fearsome storms and was virtually impossible to access. His father, Genghis Khan's forces, had tried in vain to capture it for themselves. But try as they might, they never succeeded and ultimately gave up. But that all changed when European explorers, fired by Polo's tantalizing accounts of Shipangu, wished to see the place for themselves. In 1543, a Portuguese expedition, having set off from South China, reached the southern Japanese island of Kyushu, where they made contact with the local lord of Bungo. There they set about establishing trade with the locals, bringing gunpowder and firearms from China, curry and other spices from India, and a new, from the Japanese perspective anyway, religion in the form of Christianity, specifically Catholicism. But when the lord of Bungo found out that some of his people had not only been exposed to this new faith, but that some had even gone as far as to convert, the Portuguese traders were banished from from his lands, and the new converts were either imprisoned, forced to renounce their new faith, or else faced execution. For more on the persecution of these early Japanese Christians, one should check out Shusaku Endo's fantastic novel, Silence, as well as Martin Scorsese's poignant film adaptation of the same name. With Japan's first exposure to the West being far from simpatico, it's only natural that they'd be leery to establish ties with anyone else hailing from that cardinal direction. However, 60 years later, the Dutch would roll up in roughly the same region, though their only desire was to establish trade with the Japanese. Thus, Lord Tokugawa, the ruling shogun at the time, allotted these newcomers land on a small island known as Dejima, a stone's throw from the modern port city of Nagasaki. There the Dutch set up shop, and for the ensuing two centuries, they, along with occasional ships from China granted special charters, were the only foreigners allowed on Japanese soil. Fast forward to the mid-19th century. An American, Commodore Matthew Calbraith Perry, leads an expedition to Japan in 1853, with the hopes of not only opening the nation to the world, but also establishing ties between her and the United States. Pulling up into Tokyo Bay on July 8th that same year, he offers the emperor at the time, Matsuhito, various gifts, including a working model of a steam locomotive, a telescope and telegraph, and various European and American wines, and urges the monarch to allow trade with the West. 
A year later, the emperor reluctantly agrees, and the two powers sign a treaty now known as the Treaty of Kanagawa, which would open two ports, those of Shimoda and Hakodate, to American trade ships. But while some Japanese, who were initially skeptical of this essentially forced opening, would eventually see the benefits of this exposure to Western culture and the world at large, there were those within who saw it as a threat, and shall we say, weren't all that pleased about it. They'd seen and heard, for example, how these Westerners had gone cavorting about Asia throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, subjugating several lands and empires and turning them into colonial outposts, or else full-fledged colonies, and feared that their beloved homeland would be next. What would become of their culture, the way of life they'd enjoyed for centuries? It was against this backdrop of uncertainty that our story really begins. It was just before and during this exciting time in Japanese history that the subject of today's episode was born and came of age, respectively. Incidentally, not all that far from where those selfsame Portuguese traders had landed three centuries prior. The man known to history as Saigo Takamori, or perhaps the honorific Saigo-san, was born Saigo Kokichi in Kagoshima on the southern Japanese island of Kyushu, then part of the Satsuma domain, which had been ruled by the powerful Shimazu clan since the 13th century, on January 23, 1828, the eldest of seven children of a samurai squire known as Saigo Kichibe and his wife Masa. When Yoshinobu Tokugawa, the last shogun, resigned in 1867, restoring power back to the emperor, he was allowed to keep his status in lands, a part of the negotiation that distressed and infuriated Saigo-san and others of the region greatly. For much of the history of feudal Japan, the Tokugawa shogunate and the Satsuma domain had not seen eye to eye, and had, in fact, fought with one another for land and power. With Yoshinobu's resignation, the Shimazu clan feared even greater foreign influence in Japan, which naturally they saw as a threat to their dominance. Thus, they allied themselves with the emperor, and meant to strike down the last of the shogunate's supporters once and for all. The subsequent Boshin War, also known as the Japanese Civil War, saw Saigo-san lead the imperial army all the way to the capital at Edo, now Tokyo, where he wrenched the famed Edo castle from the hands of Count Katsuyasuyoshi. So it was that Saigo-san first appeared on the pages of Japanese history, and making quite an impression at that. From there, he became a prominent figure in the Meiji-era government, where he proved influential in the abolition of the Han system, in which the formerly feuding independent states scattered throughout the land were united under a single banner for the first time in centuries, much like Italy's Risorgimento or the German unification, both of which occurred at roughly the same time. But while the government continued to move towards further outside influence and exposure, Saigo-san remained vocal about his opposition to modernization. For instance, when the imperial government greenlit a nationwide railway project with the help of British engineers, he famously quipped that the money will be better if invested in strengthening and modernizing the newly unified nation's military. But that wasn't all he did. He soon became something of a loud, boisterous figure, to say nothing of a thorn in the government's side, using his newfound prestige as a springboard to administer his own brand of Japanese sovereignty. Among his wilder ideas was none other than war with Korea, an idea he introduced at the historic Sekanron debate of 1873 in Edo. Because the Korean government refused to recognize the legitimacy of Emperor Meiji as ruler of Japan, and reportedly hurled insults at Japanese envoys attempting to establish diplomatic and trade relations with their neighbor to the west, Saigo-san suggested that he personally travel to Korea to, quote, act so insultingly that they'd have no choice but to kill me, thus instigating a war between the two nations. As you might expect, none of the other Japanese officials sided with him on this, and the matter was swiftly forgotten. Saigo-san, however, took this as an insult as well as the final straw, and he swiftly resigned from his post, returning to his native Kagoshima. For all intents and purposes, it appeared as if he'd walked off the historical record for good, but his act of resistance, if you will, soon spurred a walkout from other high-ranking officials, namely those former samurai who'd also originally hailed from Kagoshima, and they returned home amid already mounting tensions between their region and the government. 
Disillusioned with the direction the Japanese government was heading, Saigo-san, upon his return to Kagoshima, opened an elite military academy there known as the Shigako. Its purpose was to train those self-same former samurai who'd walked off the job, as it were, with him to Edo. Soon not only had they received proper military training, but they also achieved high-ranking positions in local politics and government, so much so that those in Edo began to take notice. Fearing that a revolution was imminent, the government in Edo sent a fleet of warships to Kagoshima to retrieve weapons from a fully stocked arsenal there. Naturally, this didn't sit well with the locals, and open conflict between the two factions quickly broke out, surprisingly, much to Saigo-san's dismay. What's more, the so-called rebel factions wanted him to personally lead them against the central government, a burden he reluctantly accepted. With that, the Satsuma Rebellion began. The Satsuma Rebellion, or the Seinan War, from the Japanese Seinan, meaning Southwest, the direction from the capital of Kagoshima proper, pegged the former disaffected samurai who'd walked out of the government in Edo against the Japanese Imperial Army. Taking place just nine years into the start of the Meiji Restoration, it was the first large-scale conflict of which the newly opened country was involved. With the rebel factions being led personally by Saigo-san, it seemed, for a time, that they'd be successful. For instance, they led two significant campaigns against imperial forces, the siege of Kumamoto Castle and the Battle of Tabaruzaka, both of which took place on the southern island of Kyushu, giving them, so they felt, a home advantage. Indeed, Saigo-san was confident in his ability at wrenching Kumamoto Castle back from imperial hands, something that would prove to be a highly symbolic victory, as the Satsuma Domain's base of operations was, and had always been, there. But he underestimated the strength, will, and numbers of the conscripts of the enemy side. Having failed to secure it, he instead decided on an all-out siege. For a time, it appeared as though they'd win, but the Imperial Army eventually broke through their lines in the Battle of Tabaruzaka nearby. Greatly outnumbered, the rebels fled, at which time they were relentlessly pursued and hunted down like dogs. The final skirmish of the conflict, the Battle of Shiroyama, took place on September 24, 1877, and would prove to be the so-called last stand for Saigo-san and his samurai adherents. In that battle, the remainder of the rebel forces, personally led by Saigo himself, found themselves surrounded on all sides by the Imperial Army. At some point during the battle, Saigo-san had been injured, quite badly, in the hip, incapacitating him to the point where he could no longer fight. But rather than surrender himself to the enemy, legend has it that he died in true samurai fashion. Producing his blade, he plunged it into his stomach in the traditional seppuku suicide. Upon seeing this, one of his troops produced his own sword and promptly decapitated him where he stood. While seemingly barbaric to us here in the West, such a practice was considered more honorable than succumbing to defeat, similar to how Roman generals would toss themselves onto their own swords rather than be captured by the enemy. Thus, both the Satsuma Rebellion and Saigo-san's life came to an end. While considered an enemy of the state at the time, Saigo-san would ultimately be pardoned by the Japanese government 12 years later, on February 22, 1889. The Japanese people, too, came to admire and respect him, as he stood by his principles up to the very end. Several posthumous honors were bestowed upon him, including a bronze likeness in Ueno Park in Tokyo on December 18, 1898. As for his hometown of Kagoshima, he naturally continues to be a beloved and enduring local legend there, one whose resistance to government tyranny continues to inspire to this day, not just for local people, but throughout the world. Thanks for listening, and a very happy new year to you all. 
I apologize that this episode was delayed. It was meant to be the final episode of 2023, but as you know, the holiday season proved to be far more hectic and busier than even I initially anticipated. Still, I wish you all a very beautiful and blessed year ahead. If you like this segment on Psychosan and have resolved to support podcasts and podcasters in 2024, you might wish to make a monthly contribution to this one. Just visit podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support button, which will direct you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing also help, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Join me again next week for another informative installment, this time on the history of England's oldest university, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.